Hello and welcome to the FAST podcast. My name is Andy Shen and I am the Government and Multilateral Organizations Lead at the Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking Initiative, or FAST, which is managed by the United Nations University Center for Policy Research. I am joined today by my colleagues Loria May Haywood, the FAST Research Associate, and Nadine Cambris, the FAST Anti-Money Laundering Specialist. Loria May and I work closely together on the Asset Recovery and Restitution Initiative, the focus of this episode of the FAST podcast. This episode is part one of our podcast on asset recovery and compensation for victims and survivors of forced labor and human trafficking. Part two will be released the week of 4th of December as part of our contribution to the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We will start with a brief introduction of FAST and the Asset Recovery and Restitution Initiative before discussing forced labor and poor bans and the anti-money laundering regime. We will then share about the research conducted under the Asset Recovery and Restitution Initiative key findings, good practices, and our key recommendations. FAST is a multi-stakeholder initiative that aims to mobilize the financial sector against modern slavery and human trafficking. It is a knowledge partner for governments, multilateral organizations, and financial sector actors alike. Through its alliance-building and survivor-informed approach, FAST works with its partners around the world to end modern slavery and human trafficking in line with the UN Sustainable Development Goals, in particular SDG Target 8.7. About a year and a half ago, FAST decided to undertake a new project focused on how the financial sector could help increase remedy and specifically compensation for victims and survivors of forced labor or human trafficking in global value chains. Remedy for forced labor and human trafficking is a fundamental human right and guaranteed in many national laws. And there is knowledge that compensation has the potential to reduce vulnerability to re-trafficking and re-victimization. Yet, the disparity between illicit profits and compensation remains glaring. Given the increased use in recent years of both trade and anti-money laundering laws to combat forced labor and human trafficking, FAST decided to explore how the information gathered during the enforcement of forced labor import bans, that is, laws that prohibit the importation of goods produced by forced labor, could potentially be used by government agencies that enforce anti-money laundering laws to investigate suspected money laundering, freeze, seize, and confiscate the illicit assets and proceeds of trafficking or forced labor, and compensate victims and survivors with the confiscated assets and proceeds. Currently, the United States, Canada, and Mexico have forced labor import bans, and the European Union is considering a ban as well. Before we dive into the details of our research and recommendations, my colleague Nadine will provide a brief introduction on the anti-money laundering regime and explain how asset recovery can be used to compensate victims of human trafficking and forced labor. Nadine, over to you. Thank you. Andy, for your introduction. As you have mentioned earlier, remedy and compensation are essential human rights for victims and survivors of forced labor and the human trafficking that have been increasingly incorporated into national legislation. Two decades ago, the United Nations Convention Against Transnational Organized Crime and the Palermo Protocol have included provisions relating to an effective remedy for human trafficking. As per forced labor, This right has been recognized earlier, in 1930 and 1966, with the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the Protocol of 2014 to the Forced Labor Convention of 1930. Furthermore, related principles and guidelines issued by different UN agencies, international organizations, and initiatives have also tackled remediation and compensation for victims and survivors of human trafficking and forced labor. But 
What is the nexus between such remedies and the anti-money laundering framework? Let's first start with a simple definition of money laundering. It is the process of making dirty money look clean. Obviously, dirty money should be the result of a criminal activity. Therefore, there must be a crime behind the process of cleaning its criminal proceeds. Having said that, money laundering includes three stages. First, the stage of placement or the physical disposal of cash or other assets derived from criminal activity. Second, the state of layering or the separation of illicit proceeds from their source by layers or financial transactions intended to concealing the origin of the proceeds. And third, the stage of supplying apparent legitimacy to illicit wealth through the re-entry of the funds into the economy. According to the Financial Action Task Force, which is an independent intergovernmental body, that develops and promotes policies to protect the global financial system against money laundering, terrorist financing and the financing of proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, and which issues recommendations that are recognized as the global anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing standards, human trafficking is a serious offense, thus a predicate offense to money laundering. Therefore, the anti-money laundering framework is applicable to human trafficking. Now, what is asset recovery and what is the nexus between asset recovery and the anti-money laundering framework? Asset recovery is the act of depriving criminals of their illicit assets. For the Financial Action Task Force and other AML or anti-money laundering actors, it is a fundamental target and a key pillar of a county strategy. It is worth noting that the UN Convention Against Corruption has devoted an entire chapter to asset recovery linked to corruption, and that the recommendation of the Financial Action Task Force tackling asset recovery adopt a much broader definition, although a clear reference is made to the UN Convention Against Corruption. There are four main stages in asset recovery. First, the identification stage where the collection of information on criminally obtained assets takes place through the use of intelligence, tracing of financial flows, and subsequent evidence gathering. Second, the suspension stage or freezing and asset seizure. Third, the confiscation stage. In this stage, court proceedings occur, leading to a permanent change of the possession of the assets in favor of the state. The last phase consists of assets return and compensation to the victims. The procedures are set by bilateral or multilateral treaties, national legislation, or more frequently an intersection of the two, especially because perpetrators may frequently aim at laundering the criminal proceeds in a country other than the one in which the crime has been committed. In that case, international cooperation mechanisms which are a form of a mutual legal assistance between countries, facilitate and enable criminal asset recovery from one country to another. However, it's worth noting that different studies have highlighted that victims of forced labor and human trafficking face serious challenges in accessing the remedy they are entitled to. This is partly due to several nuances and complications pertaining to the process, which involves various actors and 
requires strong collaboration and coordination among them, but also to the fact that investigation, conviction, and sentencing of perpetrators of a human trafficking and forced labor are somehow in their initial stages in most of the countries across the globe, bearing in mind that most national anti-trafficking legislation is still less than a decade old. This also could explain the extremely low number of reported cases involving forced labor and human trafficking to the competent authorities compared to the magnitude of the problem. Over to you, Andy. Thank you for that presentation, Nadine. I will now turn it over to my colleague, Loria May, who will provide an overview of our research. Thanks, Andy. The Asset Recovery and Restitution Initiative is premised on a very stark and sad reality, and that is that billions of dollars are generated each year from human trafficking and forced labor. Unfortunately, despite this massive generation of illicit profits and proceeds, a significantly small amount in comparison usually goes back to victims and survivors in the form of compensation as a form of remedy. This is what we refer to as the remedy gap. The fact that human trafficking and forced labor occur is itself horrific, and this is compounded by the lack of sufficient compensation to victims and survivors, which prolongs their trauma and heightens their risk of victimization. In light of such realities, the Asset Recovery and Restitution Initiative is geared towards increasing compensation to victims and survivors of human trafficking and forced labor through the combined use of three key components. Firstly, the Asset Recovery and Restitution Initiative advocates for work alongside bans, which prevent the importation of goods produced by forced labor, otherwise known as import bans. Import bans are an important tool to be leveraged because they provide a mechanism to identify those engaged in forced labor in source countries. This is an important starting point and brings me to the second feature of the Asset Recovery and Restitution Initiative. The initiative advocates for the use of the anti-money laundering framework alongside these import bans in an effort to both facilitate and increase compensation for victims. As Nadine mentioned, the anti-money laundering framework comprises the freezing, seizure, and confiscation of illicit assets and proceeds in this case, applied to goods produced by forced labor and human trafficking. Thirdly, the Asset Recovery and Restitution Initiative advocates for cooperation and collaboration among key public, private, and multilateral agencies and entities to facilitate and enable compensation for victims and survivors. As import bans are combined with the anti-money laundering framework and as agencies and entities cooperate, and collaborate with each other. We envision that there will be greater compensation for victims and survivors of human trafficking and forced labor. Now to how we carried out our research. We distributed questionnaires to agencies and entities that have or could potentially play a role in the recovery of assets or proceeds derived and laundered from human trafficking and or forced labor. These agencies included customs authorities, financial intelligence units, law enforcement, ministries of justice, civil society organizations, the Egmont Group of Financial Intelligence Units, the Wolfsburg Group, and members of the Wolfsburg Group. 
Countries chosen for participation were those which have import bans, those that have considered or may consider such bans, as well as those which have been subject to or affected by U.S.-initiated withhold release orders. What we really wanted to find out was largely the role, success, and plans that these agencies and entities have regarding the investigations into assets and proceeds laundered from human trafficking and forced labor, the freezing and seizing of assets and proceeds linked with human trafficking and forced labor, and the compensation of victims and survivors. Aside from responses from banks and multilateral organizations, questionnaire responses were gathered from 13 countries across Africa, Asia-Pacific, Europe, and North America. Thank you, Loria May. Could you tell us about some of the key findings that emerged from our research? Sure. And before I delve into some of the key findings from our research, you should be aware that responses from the questionnaires are based on a small number of agencies and entities and their respective representatives. The responses, therefore, do not reflect the landscape of agencies and entities that have a role to play in the asset recovery process. Further, it is also important to note that responses do not necessarily reflect the individual and or collective practices of agencies and entities. You should also bear in mind that the geographic participation of participants is not evenly distributed and that questionnaires were predominantly in English. In the case of civil society organizations, questionnaires were in both English and Bahasa. What this research, however, clearly demonstrates is the potential that exists for the recovery of additional assets and proceeds, which can be used to compensate the victims and survivors. Now, what we found in our research is that more agencies and entities were involved in doing investigations or providing information in support of investigations into proceeds laundered from human trafficking and forced labor. And this is compared to their involvement in the freezing and seizure of assets. More agencies and entities similarly provided training in support of the making of investigations when compared to training to support the freezing and seizure of assets linked with human trafficking and forced labor. Such trends provide a glimpse into efforts that need to be made across agencies and entities to support the freezing and seizing of illicit assets and proceeds towards the compensation of victims and survivors of forced labor and human trafficking. On the issue of cooperation, we found that ministries of justice and their equivalent had greatest cooperation with other agencies and entities to support the asset recovery process. And the Public Prosecution Service of the Netherlands was particularly noted in this regard. Now I will touch on the most important part of our research, that is our findings directly related to compensation. The majority of respondents in this study, and by majority I mean 78%, across financial intelligence units, customs authorities, law enforcement, ministries of justice, and civil society organizations, believed in shared responsibility for the provision of compensation. These Respondents believed that compensation should be provided by both the responsible individuals and companies in the country where the worker was exploited and the profiting company or companies 
in the country where the goods produced by forced labor and or victims of human trafficking were sold. However, only a small number of agencies and entities have collaborated with other agencies and entities in investigating corporate buyers of goods produced by forced labor and human trafficking. The illicit proceeds that companies in market states derive from the sale of goods produced by forced labor in their value chains are not subject to asset recovery and cannot be used to compensate victims and survivors because such transactions are not considered a predicate offense to money laundering. This reality makes apparent the need for states to consider criminalizing, knowingly benefiting financially from forced labor or human trafficking, and including this in their list of predicate offenses to money laundering. And this is one of our many recommendations. Another insightful finding from our asset recovery research was on who it was thought should be responsible for ensuring that victims and survivors actually receive compensation. Respondents from civil society organizations believed that multiple avenues can be explored. For example, 36% of civil society organizations believed in the responsibility of government agencies in the country of origin. 28% believed in the responsibility of government agencies in the country of exploitation. 24% believed in the responsibility of civil society organizations representing victims and survivors and or their families, while 12% believed in the responsibility of government agencies in the market state. It should be noted that while some efforts made by respective agencies and entities have resulted in the enabling of compensation of victims and survivors of forced labor and human trafficking, the ability of victims and survivors to access this compensation and to be equipped with the capacities to use this compensation are not automatically addressed or guaranteed. The core challenge experienced by agencies and entities in the delivery of compensation to victims and survivors was that victims and survivors did not have access to an account from a regulated institution other than a bank for example, a mobile money service provider. This was closely followed by the challenge of survivors not having access to a bank account and that of finding or tracing survivors. It should also be noted that the majority of questionnaire respondents from civil society organizations across all represented countries placed a high level of importance on financial education and literacy for victims and survivors. In some cases, civil society organizations and other organizations have provided financial education to victims and survivors of human trafficking who received or were expected to receive compensation. Thank you for that detailed overview of the research findings, Loria May. Could you share some of the promising practices emerging from our research? Sure. I'll just briefly highlight two promising practices that demonstrate interagency and multi-stakeholder cooperation. And these are, of course, key components of our asset recovery and restitution initiative. These practices are based on the responses from our questionnaire respondents. The first example 
is Project Protect. Project Protect is a public-private partnership comprising law enforcement agencies, financial institutions, regulators, and survivors. It targets proceeds laundered from human trafficking with the goal of addressing trafficking for sexual exploitation. As a consequence of its actions, there has been an increase in suspicious transaction reporting in Canada regarding links between money laundering and trafficking in the sex trade. While responding to their reporting obligations under the Proceeds of Crime, Money Laundering and Terrorist Financing Act, financial institutions such as banks have made reference to Project Protect and or human trafficking in their reports to FinTrack. And of course, FinTrack is the Financial Intelligence Unit of Canada. The second example that I would like to highlight is from Malawi. So a civil society organization in Malawi has been a part of a chain of reporting on local companies or entities that use forced labor and or human trafficking. Employees of the civil society organization would usually collect supporting information from community child protection workers, labor monitors, border monitors, community police forums, and key persons in the community. Civil society organizations would then provide this information to gazetted law enforcement agencies, such as immigration, social welfare, and the labor office and police. As Loria May highlighted, the information used for the enforcement of import bans can be used to facilitate the confiscation of assets and proceeds from individuals or companies in the state where workers were exploited, but it is currently not possible for assets and proceeds from forced labor or trafficking to be confiscated from individuals or companies in market states where the goods produced by forced labor or trafficking were sold. This is, as Loria May mentioned, because such transactions are not considered a crime and therefore not a predicate offense to money laundering. Even in jurisdictions where knowingly benefiting from forced labor or trafficking and value chains is a crime, it has not been treated as a predicate offense to money laundering. Part two of this podcast will dive deeper into this critical issue, and we will hear from the Netherlands FIU, the Human Trafficking Legal Center, a Malawi CSO. In addition to recommending states criminalize knowingly benefiting financially from forced labor or human trafficking and make it a predicate offense for money laundering, FAST has five other key recommendations based on our research. First, states with existing forced labor import bans and those that adopt such bans in the future should explicitly require entities subject to detention or seizure orders to provide compensation and other forms of remedy in consultation with victims and survivors and or their representatives where possible as a condition of lifting such orders. The recommendation on making knowingly benefiting financially from forced labor human trafficking a crime and a predicate offense to money laundering is one of multiple possible civil avenues for victims and survivors to obtain compensation. Second, all states should establish clear guidance on the provision and exchange of information, including detailing the steps and potential actors involved in the process to compensate victims and survivors. Third, all states should allow for confiscated assets and proceeds to be used for compensation to victims and survivors of forced labor or human trafficking and where generalized compensation funds are used, ensure there are always sufficient funds to compensate all victims and survivors and give priority to them before all other parties. This has been noted by multiple stakeholders in our research as a critical part of increasing remedy for victims and survivors. Fourth, all states should facilitate and enable victims and survivors access to bank accounts or accounts from regulated financial institutions other than banks 
as a part of the restitution process in forced labor and trafficking cases to ensure that victims and survivors actually receive the money to which they are entitled. And finally, where the capacity exists, states should provide compensation to victims and survivors of forced labor or human trafficking in cases where compensation is not forthcoming, in whole or part, from individuals or companies in the country where their worker was exploited and from where goods produced by forced labor or human trafficking were sold. This is an example and a best practice from the Netherlands and one that states around the world to the extent that they have the capacity to do so should consider emulating. We have now reached the end of this episode of the FAST podcast. We encourage listeners to read our asset recovery and restitution report, which can be found on the FAST website, and share your feedback with our team. Remedy, including compensation, is essential to preventing and ending modern slavery, and we all have an important part to play in ensuring victims and survivors are paid for the work that they do and the harms that they suffer. Part two of this podcast will feature some of the key external stakeholders that participated in the FAST Asset Recovery and Restitution Initiative, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, the Netherlands Financial Intelligence Unit, the Human Trafficking Legal Center, Malawi CSO, and Barclays. I'll moderate the discussion around remedy and the role different stakeholders can play in ensuring victims and survivors of human trafficking and forced labor are adequately compensated. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast, and please stay tuned for part two.